Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 38 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on the 29th of March, 2018, and it's a beautifully sunny day here in Scotland. There was a bit of frost around this morning though, and in fact there is a wee bit of snow forecast for the holiday weekend. We have a family picnic and egg rolling session uh, booked for Easter Sunday, so fingers crossed it stays dry and bright. In other personal news, I'm taking a week off in April while the kids are on their school holiday, and I can't wait. My eldest is actually going to university this year, and there are lots of lasts happening. It's making me even more grateful and soppy for family time than ever. Right, I'm actually not going to talk about that anymore because I will get all choked up. Besides, she's not leaving till September, so... It's absolutely too soon for me to start crying. My guest today is Michael Ford, who writes as MJ Ford. Michael's debut crime book has just come out, but he has worked for many years as both an editor and writer for Working Partners. And he gives a fascinating insight into the world of book packaging and the benefits for a writer of working for a publishing company like Working Partners. It's essentially another income stream option for writers, and that's always welcome. In my writing news this month, I've been back to my current work in progress, after pausing for the Beneath the Water launch and promo. It's been really lovely to get back to writing, uh, but I'm trying to wrestle the messy zero draft into a proper readable draft, so there are lots of tricky stop-start places rather than the sort of headlong rush of creation and I'm having to make lots of decisions which I find really hard. I save multiple versions of the draft though and I tell myself that I'm just making the decision or rewriting the scene for now and that I can always go back to yesterday's version or last week's. I very rarely do go back to an old version but it really helps me to move forward. Another thing that has helped me to get back into the draft writing uh, was a mini retreat I did on one day. It was very mini, as it was just during the day in a local town, but I holed up in a cafe for breakfast and mid-morning tea and lunch, and I got about two and a half thousand words done, um, plus some editing and some reading over the old material. Now, as you know, I'm not super fast, and that's a really good day of words for me. I feel silly that I've been talking about doing it for so long, and to be totally honest with you, I've been putting it off. I think it's a sort of mix of guilt at leaving my garden office to write elsewhere, and a weird kind of resistance. A bit of fear, I guess. The problem with going somewhere without Wi-Fi to write is that you're going to have to write or be very bored. And um, since I'm somebody who absolutely loves to stifle feelings of discomfort or boredom or stress or sadness by reading the internet and watching Netflix, uh, it can be properly daunting to take myself away from those comforts. 
but it worked really well. And I actually really enjoyed it too. I think getting away from the house um, and my sort of familiar environment, uh, even getting away from my beloved office, uh, just seeing something different was really energizing. Um, seeing other people, not to talk to, but just to watch, <laughs> um, watching the world go by and all of that, that was really um, inspiring and motivating. Um, so yes, I'm going to do at least one more of these days in April and hopefully maybe two or three. I have to remind myself that just because I have this home office, it doesn't mean I have to be tied to it and I shouldn't feel guilty about it. This is my job and it's okay if sometimes I need to change my environment to help myself be as productive as possible. In other work news, I am waiting to hear about my supernatural thriller. So my agent is currently submitting it and that means that I am waiting and frantically checking my email. Um, it's really hard. It, it doesn't really get any easier being on submission um, and waiting for rejections and obviously hoping for good news. Um, but there is such a lot of it in this business. It does also make me super grateful that I have other projects like this podcast to keep me busy and distracted. Speaking of the podcast, a huge thank you to the kind response to my new Patreon page for the show. I have set one up in the hope that I can cover the hosting costs of running the podcast uh, so that I'm no longer running it at a loss. The next step will be building up some money towards my time so that I can create more audio and written content for The Worried Writer. If you want to support the show, you can do so for as little as just $1 a month. For $2, which is I think about £1.50, maybe less, you also get access to an exclusive mini audio extra halfway through the month. I will put a link to the page in the show notes. And without further ado, here is my very first Patreon supporters shout out. A massive thank you to my very first patrons. It really does mean a great deal to me that you're willing to support the show in this way and that you truly value it. I actually cried when the first one came through. Although, as my kids will tell you, I am a crier. So thank you to Vanessa Robertson, Bill Cocus, David Jones... Janine Swan, and Eve Wittenmeyer. Thank you so much to all of you, and it has been such a life-affirming uh, demonstration of what can happen if you are willing to ask. Speaking of which, a bit more writing news and a spot of advice. My first two books were in a digital-first contract with Karina, which meant that they were initially released as ebooks. The Language of Spells was followed with a print edition, but The Secrets of Ghosts wasn't. I asked my agent if I could get the print rights for The Secrets of Ghosts reverted back to me, and Karina has just agreed to do so, which means I can finally get it made into a print book, which I'm really thrilled about. I do get emails every so often from readers who really don't like reading in ebook format and really would like to have The Secrets of Ghosts in print. So it's going to be so nice to get that made and then I can respond positively to those questions. I will have to get a cover designed obviously because I don't own the cover art for the book um, and I will have to work out how to format for print um, but I'm excited to have another project and ultimately another product in my shop as it were. 
Also, if you signed a traditional contract, I want to urge you to check your contract. And if your publisher is not exploiting or using some of those rights, such as print or audio or large print or foreign rights, then please do ask your agent or go directly and request that they are reverted to you. If they're not being used, then you can use them or maybe even sell them to another publisher who can then actually take advantage of them. They're not doing anything for you or your career or your readers if they are just sitting there in a filing cabinet effectively. If you are interested in more of this kind of hybrid approach or independent publishing, then I highly recommend you check out um, the Self-Publishing Journeys podcast by Paul Teague. While Joanna Penn is my go-to resource, as you all know, Paul's podcast is a brilliant honest and transparent look at what it's like to build a writing career as an independent author, but without having a sort of instant breakout success and at a sort of earlier stage than Joanna is at. Paul often says that he doesn't feel he's very successful, but then he shares some of his monthly earnings um, and he's very open and honest about the finances of his business. And he's definitely doing better in a financial sense than a lot of traditionally published authors that I know. He does a sort of interview piece, I think it's once a week, and he does a podcast diary every Saturday. And I really do like the way that he shares the sort of nuts and bolts of his writing process and the publishing side. And I think for people who are sort of at the start of independently publishing or maybe considering to go you know, thinking about going hybrid and um, just considering their options, I think he is definitely worth a listen. Another podcast I'd like to recommend is actually from somebody who has been on this show, uh, the best-selling, Sunday Times best-selling author, Gillian McAllister. It's called The Honest Authors Podcast, and in it, two traditionally published authors, so Gillian McAllister and Holly Seddon, um, they chat and they interview people about the kind of realities of being traditionally published. Um, I have somehow I managed to miss the start of it, so I've got loads to catch up on, which is really nice. Um, I just listened to the Sarah Pinborough interview episode and I really enjoyed the open conversation and Sarah Pinborough is really fun to listen to as well. Um, I heard her on the bestseller experiment and it was one of my favourite episodes of that. As ever, if you've got a suggestion for this show or a podcast recommendation for me or a question you would like answered, do get in touch. Sarah at worriedwriter.com or of course you can find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or on the Worried Writer Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening and for rating, subscribing and spreading the word about the show. A very quick shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter. AB Guy, who's at AB Guy Writes. Georgiana Daniels, who's at Georgiana D. Paula Williams, who's at Paula Williams 44. And Leah or Lia Middleton. I'm very sorry, I don't know how to say your first name. It is L-I-A. Leah Middleton said, I have listened to your Worried Writer podcast religiously and each episode has been so comforting and motivating. Thank you so much. And now, on to the interview section of the show. Michael Ford, who writes under the name MJ Ford, has written and edited children's fiction for working partners for several years. 
His debut novel for adults, Hold My Hand, is out this month from Avon, and worried writer podcast favourite Mel Sherratt called it superb, gritty and realistic. Welcome to the show, Michael, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Your debut has a wonderfully creepy premise. Would you mind sharing it with the audience? Uh, yes, certainly. So the book is called Hold My Hand. Um, it begins um, in the 1980s with a scene set in a carnival, and it's told through the perspective of a little girl called Jo Masters. Um, she's having a great time with her friends, but she but she gets separated from them temporarily. And while while she's away, she she witnesses a, a little boy being led away from the carnival site towards a forest by um, a man dressed as a clown. And she she finds this, this un, sort of unsettling, um, but she doesn't really know what to do about it. And so she doesn't really do anything at all. And it's only when she see, witnesses the little boy's panicking mother that she realises that maybe what's going on is 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 more sinister. Um, and I think it's fair to say that 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 event has a formative effect on her life. Um, the story then skips to 30 years later. Um, and now little Joe Masters is Detective Sergeant Joe Masters at Avon and Somerset Police. Um, and she's um she's one of the first on the scene um of a um, of a a body which has been found and it's it's a child's skeleton um and it's wrapped in a red football shirt which is what the boy at the start of the book who was kidnapped was wearing um so she finds herself drawn back into this case which has a has a personal connection to her um unfortunately for her the lead detective on the case is actually her ex-partner with whom she split very acrimoniously so she has to sort of navigate professional and uh, and personal difficulties in order to solve the case well it sounds fantastic but um i have to admit i haven't actually read it yet uh because i am quite freaked out by clowns so (laughs) that seems to be quite a common thing i've heard yeah (laughs) oh absolutely but um just before we go any further, I think we should go right back to the beginning and ask the traditional question, did you always want to be a writer? Uh, yes, I think in, <laughs> in one form or another I, I did. I, I don't think I had any grasp, um, even in my sort of teen, teen years or even early 20s maybe, what, what was involved, or, or nor did I know anything about the business. Um, I think I, I thought you could still earn a living being poet until I was about 22. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly naive. Um, I, I started writing properly um, when I was about sort of 24, I think. Um, I, I worked as a, an editorial assistant for a, a publisher at the time, a non-fiction publisher of children's non-fiction. And uh, we had a very long series of books called uh, You Wouldn't Want to Be. And it was sort of in the horrid histories, horrible histories mould of learn and laugh at the same time. And the titles were things like, you wouldn't want to be married to King Henry VIII, or you wouldn't want to <laughs> sail on the Titanic, or be a prospector in the gold rush. Um, and, I, and I convinced my, my boss at the time that um, we could do one about the ancient Greek Olympic Games. Um, I'd studied... Um, I studied uh, classics at university, um, and then after university, I taught English in Greece, um, and actually lived just around the corner from ancient Olympia, which is an amazing site if you've ever been. Um, and still, the stadium's still there, and the ruins of several temples. Um, now, I had a pretty bad degree in classics, um, but I had quite a firm grasp of that historical topic. 
Um, so if we did, you wouldn't want to be um, an ancient Greek athlete at the Olympic Games. Um, and it was quite a nice, easy way in because, you know, small clumps of text, quite humorous. Um, I was still trying to write poetry at the time, going to kind of various poetry meetings, which were either sort of drinking, you know, drinking clubs or uh, quite cutthroat criticism where you weren't allowed to drink at all, neither of which I was great at. Um, but I didn't, I didn't start writing fiction properly until I was in my sort of mid to late 20s um, when I was working at, at Working Partners. Um, and I think I can probably talk a bit more about Working Partners and, and what they, they do later um, sort of get into that. No, absolutely. So I would actually love to hear more about Working Partners. Um, would it be possible for those who aren't familiar, um, if you could just give us a wee rundown about that company and what they do? Yeah, I will. I'll try not to use too much sort of publishing jargon if I can <laughs> sort of get away with it. Um, Working Partners is what's called a packager. And to the general public, that might not be particularly well known. Um, it's sort of like the, the cousin of publishing. Um, Packages essentially do the same thing as a writer in that they sell manuscripts to publishers. The difference is that packages tend to be collaborative creators. Um, and by that, I mean lots of people work on a book, not just a single writer. Um, so at Working Partners, what we do, um, and I'll use the present tense because I do still work there part time, is we come up with storylines through brainstorming. Um, and those storylines are enhanced and elaborated until they're quite detailed synopses of several thousand words. Um, and, and then after that, we find a writer to write a book, to attach to the, to the storyline. Um, so in a way, we work a bit like a kind of uh, TV writer's room or film, film studio writer's room. Mm -hmm. um, and the difference sort of legally, I suppose, between a packager and a writer is that um, we, well, what we do at Packager, we retain the copyright. So even if a writer writes for us, it's still a working partner's copyright project. Um, and that means we have lots of control over what we can do with the content. Um, Often the work, if you write for Working Partners, is under a pseudonym, and that's because you might not be the only writer on a series of books. Um, so um, we have quite close relationships with publishers in that they approach us often with uh, a request. They might say, you know, we have space on our list, we really want a book for 12-year-old girls, or we really want a kind of book for chapter book for six-year-old boys or we really want a book on this topic or that in this genre and we can to an extent tailor what we do to meet those expectations um, we also just produce books uh, without a publisher being involved at the start you know just off the back of what an editor at working partners might want to pursue um, now i suppose we we, are, we look to exploit, um, to use the content across all media. So it's not just books, it's also TV and film, it's video games, it's live theatre shows, um, uh, yeah, theatrical sort of production. Um, and we often produce uh, series rather than standalone books. Um, just it makes it makes sense to kind of use it, create a brand if you like. So, um, working partners are behind some of the best-selling children's series, um, you know, in the UK and globally. Things like Beast Quest, Animal Ark, Rainbow Magic. Um, I mean, this is mainly children's books. Uh, the Erin Hunter brand in, in the states and globally, and and these are all series which have been running for sort of decade or decades now, or at least over a decade. Um, 
So um, although lots of writers may have worked on them, but working partners, they'll always be, have been a core team, which refreshes to keep the editorial content consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we sort of look to give readers what they know already and what they want more of, um, rather than kind of creating radical changes within a series. Um, so so I, I've, I've had two roles, really, um, to get back to the original question. Um, on the one hand, I've been an editor there, so I've been one of the creators of storylines, finding writers and then editing those writers. Um, but also I've worked for working partners on a freelance basis um, for uh, over 10 years now. Um, when I started off sort of writing um, a series called Beast Quest um, by Adam Blade, um, and, and I think there are now 160-odd of those books, and I think I, I wrote about 30. So I'm, I'm one of the the kind of the, the majority writers, I suppose, um, although there are people who've done more than me. Um, but then from, from those quite short chapter books, I've also written uh, sort of longer fantasy trilogies for teens, um, but it's, I think it's fair, fair to say that everything I know about writing uh, has come because of my experience there, which is why I bang on about it so much. You know, being edited, editing, uh, talking constantly about story and how story works um, yeah, has, has, has really helped me on my own sort of writing journey. Well, it's funny, as you were, as you were explaining, explaining there, I was thinking, well, you know, to me, it makes perfect sense. I can see within the industry why why the company exists and why it's so successful and I know from personal experience as well that um when when my two were younger when my children were younger you know those series of books um that I'm very familiar with (laughs) and they tap into not I mean I think we all quite like lots of uh keen readers like a series because you want to stay in the world that you like and the characters that you have bonded with but also with that age group I think it it also taps into that collecting um urge to collect things you know and so I know that yeah my my two both when they were at the right ages they wanted to collect the books in those series that they'd that they'd sort of bonded with so from a sort of industry point of view it makes total sense and um, I love that you mentioned that it was very like the tv writer studio thing because it's so true that you know that there are so many other art forms that are more collaborative you know, mm. um, so that's that's really interesting. Yeah. What I was going to ask you is, um, I can see from the industry point of view why it works, and I think you touched on this a wee bit. But what's the benefit for a writer writing for them? Because obviously, um, you've done a lot, and I think you've obviously you've learned a lot. But if you were speaking to somebody who's maybe interested in this, what would you say to them? Are the benefits of writing for working partners? It's interesting because um, the. the we have a wide range of, of, of writers at different stages of their careers who write for us. So uh, I suppose the most obvious is if you're, if you're fairly new to writing and if you have, you know, been working well in a novel and maybe, maybe it's, you, you know, you've had a few rejections and things like that. Um, working for working partners can be actually quite a good uh, training ground because, because we do, obviously we provide a storyline for a start so you can focus on, the craft of writing rather than particularly the craft of thinking up kind of how story should work. Um, and also the, the level of editorial feedback that we give is pretty extensive because, you know, we're, we're sort of sharing the, 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 the creation of the book. So, and we often know what, 
we often know what book we want sort of slightly better more than the writer does. Um, so you know, you, you get you get really good editorial feedback on um, on you know things things as basic as kind of. Uh, scene setting and sentence structure um, as well as kind of more broad broad feedback um, now also we have writers on the, other, on the flip side who are established published writers with other publishing houses um, who have capacity to write more than that publisher will uh, be able to publish you know some people are on sort of a book a night every nine months or every year and they and they might you know might not have the ability to go and write for other publishers and write whole novels, but they might have sort of gaps in their schedule where they can fit in books of different lengths and complexities. Um, the, um, the I think the other thing to say would be you know, that people have a kind of uh, an idea about packages sometimes that, that about things like the payment structures. Um, so people think often it's a flat fee and it's, it's not normally a flat fee. It's normally just the same as a publisher and advance and royalty. The advance sometimes isn't as large as a publisher's advance, although these days it's hard to tell sometimes <laughs> publishers advances are hardly getting bigger. Um, but, but, but what, what tends to happen is because you get involved in writing on a series, you often tend to write lot, lots of books for a packager. And actually, you know, our, our highest earning um, uh, writers are getting very substantial royalty checks every six months. Um, so I'd say that, you know, it, it can be a great way into writing and a great learning ground. Um, but it, it also, from a, from a financial perspective, it can really make sense if you're the sort of writer who has the capacity to, to write quite a lot. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, regular listeners know I'm all about the business side and about making this a long-term sustainable career. So it's fascinating to hear about another possible income stream for writers out there. As you say, those who um, maybe write, reason, you know, have gaps in their schedule, as you so as you put it so well. Um, and I think also I was I was a magazine journalist and. Um, I think even just the training of writing to deadline and working with, even working with nonfiction with an editor, just being used to working within constraints of word count or, I mean, obviously working um, for a book packager like Working Partners is on a whole other level of editorial input, as you said. But I still think that any of that kind of stuff is quite good for just general training. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, right. Almost whenever a writer gets contracted to do a working partner's book, uh, there will be a very uh, definite schedule and, a, and, and a, a very good idea of how long the book should be in terms of, of word count and things. So it's, and because of the, the, the complexity of the storylines that we provide, you can't really go too far off piste. Um, mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons I enjoy writing for them as well, because I, I kind of I know kind of I know what, what the word count is and, and, and how much I need to do each day to, to meet it. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, so, I I'm guessing that when you were you were approached by um, Harper Collins with the idea for Hold My Hand, I, I read, um, and I'm guessing that that was really because of your experience and reputation um, through your work for Working Partners. Um, is that how that came about, or? I think it's a mixture. Um, I don't think my reputation proceeds me quite that far. Um, although I have, I've done some ghostwriting as well for, for other people outside working partners, and maybe maybe that helped. Um, I think it, I, I happen to know quite a lot of people in publishing. I've been working in publishing for what 
14, 15 years now. Um, so, I, you know, I've met a lot of people, there's a lot of parties, aren't there, and things like that. So I've, I've met some people there, and I, and I know someone at HarperCollins quite well who, um, and I'm used to bouncing, he's very, he's very sort of creatively minded, and so we, we're used to bouncing around ideas for each other. And, uh, and over the years, we've talked about several kind of subjects, and and I, I've never really become involved with it, but one of the things I've realised is that he he's a bit of a kind of creative genius this guy's a bit of a guru and and he's he's got his finger on the pulse in a way that i completely haven't um so <laughs> having having kind of ignored him a lot in the past and, and not really pursued any of these these avenues this time i thought uh, okay uh, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about and um and, and it was his idea um this, this book it was originally I think the working title was Killer Clown which uh, working titles uh, obviously don't make it into print for a reason um, but um, it kind of gave an idea about what the book was about um, and, um, and, and, and yeah his idea um, on paper was only a few lines it was um, it was that there was this historical kidnap at a circus by a, by a clown um, and then the main investigation 30 years later when the body is discovered of that, that, that kidnapping victim. And, uh, and it was a female detective as well. That was one of the, the stipulations in, in this brief. Um, but now that, that was all it was. And, um, and I quite quickly, I think moved away from the clown being an important part of the story. I think it's a great hook for marketing. Um, and this, the, when we originally talked about it, it was just after that strange spate of clown hysteria where mm. people were dressing up as terror, teenagers were dressing up as clown sightings. Clowns. Yeah, and terrorizing <laughs> people. Oh. And, and, uh, and so it was a hook from that angle, but, but it wasn't really what interested me in, in the story. It was, it was more the kind of the form of the crime in the past coming back to form the person in the present. Um, and so what I did, I, I mean, I went away with their very small brief and, and worked it up into a, a long synopsis, um, you know, letting the, the main character feed into it a bit more, I suppose. Um, and then they like that angle. So that's, that's, that's where we shoot it really. Mm. And how, how has this experience been? Cause obviously you're a very experienced writer, but then this is your first, I'm assuming your first book for adults and also your mm. debut as, as you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've edited some adult books in the past uh-huh. with working partners. We, we, we uh, I was when I first joined working partners, I was part of a new adult division, working partners too, and um, uh, and it didn't really take off. It's quite hard to package adult books in the same way as it is children's because uh, the the, sing, the singular vision is slightly more important in an adult book, I think, um, and also you tend not to produce. 160 book series in, <laughs> unless you're a very successful adult author. Um, but no, I, um, yeah, it's been different in that um, when I write children's books, often it's been under a pseudonym. So I'm one, one remove from the finished product. And in this case, it's my name on the cover, albeit initialed. Um, and with that sort of post-publication aspect, um, that's been a real eye-opener for me. I, you know, I'm doing things like this podcast, um, which I've never, never done anything like this for children's fiction. I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm seeing lots of reviews on, online. Um, and although children review books, they tend not to review them in quite the same way as grown-ups do. Uh, grown-ups often, I think, give a slightly, uh, slightly more extensive review than, than, than children. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm 
bookshop visits and things like that. So the, the difference is mainly, it's not the writing as such, because I've written long books for children and, and there's not really any difference between a long book for children and a long book for, <laughs> for, for grown-ups. It's more, it's more the post-publication aspects, um, which I'm enjoying a great deal. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, I did... I found it exciting, but really quite terrifying. Uh, you won't be surprised by the title of the podcast, but um, <laughs> uh, I sort of, yeah, I felt very exposed and suddenly having to work out how much of my sort of private life or just working all of that stuff out, like what to put in a blog and what to say and answer to questions like this. Um, well, so. I think, yeah, I mean, I've, I've found that with things like Twitter and Facebook, which are things I've been peripherally, peripherally involved with in the past, uh -huh working out where the line is drawn between that that kind of public persona and, and you know my private life and, and uh, you know some people seem to to manage that balance extremely well and you know the things they reveal about themselves all kind of add to this you know uh, kind of aspirational figure uh, whereas I think kind of my my tweets and things about my my dogs and my annoying children <laughs> don't probably have quite the same uh, same impact. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a weird sort of feeling, isn't it? It is it is quite odd, um, but it gets easier. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I, the, I've done a few school visits through through my work as a children's writer, um, and I think although uh, although children don't uh, maybe give quite the same level of critical feedback as uh, as grown ups. It's quite terrifying standing in front of a, a you know 400 children because the ones who aren't interested fall asleep and uh, or just start chatting to the, to the people sitting next to them, whereas adults have a kind of inbuilt politeness, probably. No, they're very honest, I think. With That's what I've heard anyway. I don't have direct experience of it, but the other children's authors I've spoken to, they tend to say that, like you say, the review might be shorter, but it's going to be honest. It's normally, it's normally something along the lines of this is not as good as Harry Potter. Or this <laughs> that or, sounds or like an adult review, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no different. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, I was just thinking about the, obviously, the sort of writing process. You were saying that writing the book for adults, you didn't actually find that different to writing some of your longer work for children. Um, but how does your writing process work? And what does this sort of typical writing day or your your working week, what does it look like? Because I love hearing about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm quite quite regimented um in theory at least uh, with the way i write um practically occasionally falls apart but um I, I i tend to have a few things on the go um so i'm still working for working partners right um editing but i'm also freelance writing for them um and uh, at, the, so at the moment I, I have a, a couple of uh sort of thriller fantasy trilogies on the go all with quite tight deadlines and also the second joe masters book um and because I only have um, really three three days a week, two or three days a week to write in, um, and I don't particularly like eating into my family time, um, I know that within those three days I have to meet a certain word count, otherwise something has to give further down the line, uh, sleep or you know seeing the kids. Um, so I, I almost always have an idea of a word count that I have to get written every every day, every time I sit down at the computer. Um, and uh, and I tend to start in the morning, kind of uh, straight after the school at about nine o'clock, um, and just write as hard and as fast as I can to try and meet that, that, that word count. And 
you know, I stressed this in a different interview recently. When I write those words, even though uh, probably objectively I'm getting quite a lot of words written, um, they're, they're very rarely in, uh, in very good shape. They all they, they they move the story on, they move the character on, but, but I'm, I'm not happy with them um, at all. And, and, it, and it tends to be that I burn out at some point in the early afternoon um, when I'm writing, and and then I'll revisit I'll revisit that kind of awful writing the next morning um, or, or that evening, um, and just try and kind of lick it into some sort of shape. Um, but no, I, I tend to have. I think I've lots of things on the go. I tend to within a day I'll concentrate on on one book. So you know, get into that that point of view again, that, that character's mind, um, and then um, and then the next day I might be doing something completely completely different. Mm. I'm very impressed that you managed to work on more than one book project at a time. Um, is that just something that's you've developed through your working life, through your training as an editor and a writer, or? Is that, do you think, something that is just the way you work, that you're able to do that? Um, it's probably it's probably a lot to do with my editorial work. Um, in, the, the, in, in a day at working partners, I, I might be working on an animal arc, which is a kind of, uh, for, it's a veterinary kind of series for seven-year-old girls. Um, and then in the afternoon, I might be working on a kind of YA dystopian <laughs> thriller Um it, it all comes back to, I suppose, this kind of uh, just knowing your character and and slipping into their shoes as quickly as possible um, so that you just enter that world again. Mm-hmm. And do you use anything to help you do that or to help you get into the right headspace for writing? Like, do you play music or do you have to have silence? <laughs> uh, coffee is my thing. No, um, I, don't, I don't really play music, no. Um, I, I mean, I, I'll... Often, when I'm before I start each day, I'll, I'll read a little bit of, of what I've done the day before, and that just kind of reacquaints my mind uh, with, with the subject matter. So you're obviously a long-term professional writer, and you're used to tight deadlines and so on. Um, do you have any advice or your top tips for uh, any writers listening who are really trying to form good working habits? Ooh, um, I, I would say it's, it's partly about getting to know uh, yourself and, and knowing where your strengths are. And, and, and you know, you could buy a book or you read a, a blog online and, and hear a, a hundred different tips. But those tips are tips that work for that individual. They're often not very uh, generally applicable. Um, so, you know, for instance, um, you know, you'll find, you know, some people say, uh, plot the whole book out before you start, which is, I mean, it's what I do. Um, but then that doesn't work for other people. You know, other people have to have a story that evolves organically. Um, some people, you know, some people write better in the morning, and some people write better in the afternoon. Um, so I think it's it's partly just about acquainting yourself with uh, your own strengths. Um, I mean, more more generally, on you know, people sort of ask me because I'm in publishing. You know, how can I get my book? published and things like that what you know what um i want to write about this is that a good topic and for, for those sorts of questions I, I think it's it's easy for someone to generalize about the publishing industry and say this doesn't work and that doesn't work and this is why you should avoid this topic etc etc but again it's about knowing what your strengths are and what your interests are and sticking to them um you know people there are certain publishers who specialize in sort of what you 
might be disparagingly called copycat publishing. So, you know, you might find you know, 10 years ago, there were lots of stories about boy wizards or <laughs> witchcraft schools and things like that. But, but there's no point chasing trends or trying to copy what's out there because but in the most cases, you won't be writing what you really want to write and that will shine through or not shine through in lack of enthusiasm. And also trends... Trends move so quickly in publishing, and publishers don't know where trends are going. They're just <laughs> trends are only trends once they've happened. Um, and so, by the time you've written your boy wizard story, eighteen months, two years has passed since Harry Potter came out, and, and the world has moved on. I'm really glad you mentioned um, advice for people who want to get published because uh, you reminded me. I really ought to have asked you for anybody listening uh, if they are very interested in working for a book packager like Working Partners, do you have any advice for getting a foot in the door or how, how does that work? Is it a case of pitching or? So, sort of. Um, in, in the sense that, uh, well, I should have said before, for, for, for writers who are just sort of at the start of their journey or haven't had anything published, that's no barrier to working for a packager. You know, we, we have a form on our website where you can get in touch with the, the emails on our website where you can, you can fill in your details and say you're interested. Um, what I would say is uh, we tend to kind of ask people what their interests are and things like that so don't kind of narrow yourself down to kind of uh, I don't know, just tick, ticking the erotica box or something like that because you know that then, then we, we wouldn't be able to find you to, to approach you for writing a kind of love story or a thriller um, but um, if you are if you would like to write, write for working partners then then we would need to see a sample of your writing. So it, it's kind of not particularly helpful if someone just says, oh, I really want to write for working partners, but doesn't upload any, any of their actual writing. Because we need to see that you're kind of competent and that you're serious. Um, but we, we work with writers who are unagented, who haven't been published before. And some of those writers have gone on past working partners to, to be very successful in their own rights or, or very successful in their own right and continue, continuing to write for working partners. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, there are there are actually lots of avenues to explore if you if you want to be published. Um, you know, you can get involved in, in local journalism, for instance. Normally, quite quite straightforwardly, um, if you have an interesting kind of topic and you can write. Um, so I'd say if you if also for people wanting to make a career of being a writer, which is actually pretty hard to do, um, you know, be flexible, um, explore every avenue you can, even if it's not the thing, even if it's not your magnum opus that you're, you're writing and publishing, it's all grist to the mill. It's all kind of useful experience. And it all shows, always shows the publisher that you're a serious, uh, serious sort of um, engaged writer as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that's really good advice. Thank you. Um, so I jumped around a wee bit there. I had just been, <laughs> I was going to ask you, you were mentioning, um, you know, how you work to a plot um, an outline um do you does that mean that you never have creative block while you're getting your words for the day and if you do get creative block when is it likely to strike um, I, I don't get creative block in uh, in the sense that uh, I'm struggling to come up with narrative on the page because almost always either someone else will have provided the story for me or I, I would have planned things out relatively well. The, the, the times I get creative block are in storylining itself. So not, not the actual narrative, but the, the plot itself. And, um, and that hits me all the time, <laughs> all the time. I think I've, I've worked on so many books now 
as a packager, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. And what you te- what you kind of gradually realise, and this is something of a cliche, is that there are only so many plots. There are, you know, there are, you know, there are different archetypes that reappear in different genres and different uh, age categories. Um, and so, you know, we, we've now developed a shorthand at work where we could refer to a kind of scene in a movie or a scene in another book, and we'll say, well, we'll we'll use this and. You know, this is the archetype and, and, and work for it. But but no, I, I all the time I get creative block um, in that sense. And it helps enormously to talking to somebody else. I have that luxury at work when I'm an editor and I was sitting at the table talking and everyone knows that and everyone is very constructive. Um, if you're on your own, it's much harder. Um, and, you know, I can talk to my, my wife who who's, you know, can come up with some good ideas. But often in those situations when it seems that you have an insurmountable obstacle ahead, you know, your character's in the, the wrong country for, for the third act, or, or uh, you, you know, you realise that you know some, someone should be, you need to massively change someone's character earlier in the story to make sense of a decision they make later on. Um, I tend to just take myself away from it uh, and, and and just get out of the house, um, go live in quite a nice place, or take the dogs out for a walk, and uh, and sometimes. If, you, if, if I have the time, I, you know, I might leave something like those problems to, to percolate for a few days even. And something always, something always happens, something always kind of comes good. And, and often it's, it, it, it's not, not just a sort of tweak. Sometimes you think, oh, I just need to tweak something. But often it's actually sort of quite a radical shift that occurs in, in, in your head or in conversation with other people that takes the book in a different direction. Um, and the luxury of storylining before writing, getting that plot down, is that you can move things around much more easily than you can if you're 60,000 words uh, through a manuscript, yes. which has happened to all of us, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I wish I've, I've said several times on the show that I wish I could outline because it's, it just sounds so much more efficient. But <laughs> I just can't. So <laughs> I just have to write and write and then rewrite a lot <laughs> no not so good but still i think you have to accept the way that you work sometimes don't you, you do. um so do you have i mean apart from speaking to other people which is a great tip um do you have any other sort of books or resources or anything that you would recommend to listeners if they uh, either just for learning how to write or writing process stuff anything you found helpful yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a there's, there are probably two categories of, uh, of resource in this regard. There's the the, uh, the aspirational uh, category, so you could read something like Stephen King's on writing and marvel at how kind of you know, how he puts puts it, um, and, and that's sort of about your writing existence, if you like, and uh, rather than particularly technical things. Um, the 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 book which has probably had the most effect on me, and actually it's not even a full book, it's just a part of a book um, that I always talk about, is um, it's called Save the Cat. And it's actually um, a screenwriting book by a, a Hollywood screenwriter called um, Blake Snyder. And uh, there's a section in it where he breaks down uh, movie scripts by uh, into a, a kind of a, a stepped process, um, a stepped storylining process. It's 15 beats. And they cover, I think I can't remember them all, but it starts with, you know, the opening image, the exciting incident, the first act doorway, the, uh, the fun and game section, which is sort of the first half of the book where the character is succeeding and having kind of fun on an escalating uh, journey. And then the midpoint and then 
the section called the bad guys close in, which is when things start to go wrong, all leading to the hero's darkest hour and the third act finale. Uh, you know, I've, I've garbled it, but um, I, actually, I actually know it in a lot more detail. But, um, <laughs> but that, that's had the most effect on me because pretty much without fail, I will, if something isn't working in storyline terms, I will fall back on that um, and try and fit the storyline I'm producing into that template. Um, because although it sounds, it probably sounds terribly regimented, um, the, the, the point about it is it's inherently answers the question, what makes a good story? Um, what, what makes a journey and a hero compelling? Um, and so, and, and I said this in a different podcast recently, when it works, when you, when you storyline according to a template like that, as long as the writing is subsequently good enough, you can't tell as a, as a reader that, that someone has used this, this template. All that you're thinking as a reader is, gosh, this is a great story. Gosh, I want to read more because, because the structure is working properly. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I will definitely have to, I have heard of that book, um, but I haven't, it's not one I've read yet. So I'll, I'll put it to the top of the pile. Thank you. Oh. And, um, I realise that time is marching on, so um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I wanted to ask you, um, we were talking about the sort of challenges and experiences of being a debut, even though you're, you know, you've been writing for so long, (laughs) but being a debut, um, sort of out, as it were. Um, How are you balancing the kind of marketing and I suppose business side along with your writing and, and creative side? Is that difficult or...? Uh, not very well is the probably the, the most straightforward answer. I think uh, it, it's been when I sometimes when I've done children's books in the past for working partners, I haven't really even been aware when exactly they've come out. Whereas this this book, my the debut thriller, uh, you know, it's all been geared towards that publication day and the weeks around, um, and so it's been quite intensive. Um, and I, I'm completely enjoying it because actually I, I'm, I don't really like writing at all. <laughs> but I'm writing quite torturous, uh, torturous, and uh, and so it's been nice to do other things. But I, I am aware that the time I'm spending kind of trying to think of an amusing tweet or updating uh, my author Facebook page is time I'm not I'm not writing. Um, and you know, it, it makes me kind of uh, feel for kind of people who have taken the self-publishing route who kind of obviously have to do all these have to fulfill all these functions that, that my publisher is, is, is doing for me. Um, you know, things like publicity and marketing and promotions. Um, you know, I, I've had so much help from the publisher and they really have held my hand every step of the way, um, you know, with their encouragement and their organization and their logistics. Um, and, and I could never have done that on my own. Absolutely not. Um, so, um, I, yes, I am still managing to get some writing done. I'm probably not quite meeting my word counts at the moment. Um, but I'm aware that, that there's this intense period and then that we will reach a stage where really the book I've written either sinks or swims on its own merits without people talking about it all the time. Um, 
that will be quite soon, I imagine. Well, no, well, I meant to say at the start, congratulations, because it's doing really well at the moment. It's got some fantastic reviews and it's at a really good um, chart position. So congratulations. That's a huge, successful launch. Um, And I know just before we uh, started recording, we were just chatting about what you're working on at the moment. And you said that you've started the, or you're working on the dreaded second book uh so how's that going uh yeah it's good uh, you know it's really nice um getting back into josie's head you know yeah I, I, again this is gonna sound like an awful cliche but i i wrote i wrote hold my hand quite quickly um to a quite a tight deadline and so for six seven hours every day for five or six weeks not the weekends but i, I was with, i was in her head and i was with her and and get to know your characters so well like that um you can find yourself thinking like them sometimes or wondering what they would do in, in a certain scenario that you're in um and so and then you leave them completely um mm. and and when you rejoin them again it's like you kind of wonder what they've been doing all the time and, and this book the, the book i'm writing now it takes place uh, about six months after the first book and um and i was keen for the series series i'm getting above myself it's two books um i was keen for the the, the sequence of, of books not to be sort of standalone individual novels but to kind of to really stick with the main character and and, and think about um what she's done in the intervening period but also how those events from the first book are still with her because they i won't ruin it it's quite traumatic <laughs> towards the end of hold my hand and, it, and it's unrealistic to think that the character is just uh, kind of police detective who can put things away in a drawer and open a new case. Um, so it's been really good getting to sort of see her again and um, and, and that. But um, I, I'm also writing uh, a, a dystopian trilogy uh, set in in the future uh, for, for Hart Collins in America, actually, um, and that's a children's children's series. Um, and I'm also doing a, a the, the second book of a uh, a kind of Dan Brown ish. Uh, children's trilogy as well, um, sort of globe-trotting uh, historical conspiracy. Um, so uh, I've got I've got quite varied things on the go, and that, that's that's really that's really nice. Um, yeah, so I've got I've got a lot on. That's fantastic. So um, it's a two-book deal, is that right, with Avon for? Uh, it was it was actually a one-book deal. Okay. Subsequently, become another one-book deal. Um, so um, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, obviously, that it will be uh, it'll be a ten book series. But do they do they own the rights to the series as the, the characters, no. or if if I'm sure you will get another deal with them. <laughs> but if you if you didn't, would you be able to uh, go to another publisher? Or, yeah, yeah. Oh. It's, um, I, I, um, I think good. probably um, just due to the the, the the relatively short brief that they gave me, the um, the intellectual property, if you like, is mine, and the copyright is mine. Um, I mean, I can't imagine going to another publisher because they've they've been brilliant so far. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's just a traditional publishing deal in that respect. Um, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, that's yeah, that's fantastic, and really interesting to hear about. Thank you for the background. Um, so just to finish up, uh, where can people find you online? Um, right, so I have to keep get this right, don't I? Uh, so <laughs> I have a Facebook page which is uh, MJ Ford. Just MJ Ford, um, and I have a Twitter handle which is MJ Ford Books, um, and I think that's it. Um, I, I'm kind of steering clear of Instagram so far. Um, 
I can barely keep up with Facebook and Twitter. No, fair enough. How about a what about a website? Have you got a... No, I don't have a website yet. Um, no, I, um, I, I probably will. I probably will. Uh-huh. I couldn't find one. I thought perhaps. No, I, I think, you know, I think I had one years ago, uh, uh-huh. but realised that that it wasn't really quite my cup of tea. I'm, I'm aware. I'm not a luddite because I'm capable of doing these things, and I'm not anti them. But um, I, um, I just don't seem to have the time. <laughs> No, absolutely. Very understandable. But I will put all the links in the show notes and obviously a link to the book as well. Um, But that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening today. For show notes and links, head to worriedwriter.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. See you next time.